Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. The FT. Just two topics for you today on Energy Weekly, BP and Smart Grids, with me, Sylvia Pfeiffer. We've cleared the decks this week to accommodate BP and the release of its internal inquiry into the Gulf of Mexico oil spill, which became public at midday today. I'll be talking to the FT's legal correspondent, Michael Peel, about what's been revealed in the report and the implications for BP. After that, we'll hear from Fiona Harvey, the FT's environment correspondent, who spoke to Steve Cunningham, chief executive of metering company Landis & Gear, about smart grids and smart meters. But first, the story dominating the energy sector today, BP. The report runs to almost 200 pages. The thrust of it is that no single factor contributed to the accident on April the 20th, which led to 11 workers dying. BP does fault its own engineers, but it also shifts a lot of blame to Transocean and also to Halliburton, the company that was responsible for cementing the well. The report highlights three key things. One, that there was a bad cement job on the well. Two, that both BP and Transocean engineers misread the results of a pressure test on the well. And three, the failure of the valves on the seabed, which should have stopped any gas and oil from escaping. I'm now joined by Michael. Thanks very much for joining us today, Michael. Pleasure. What are the legal implications of this report? Well, I I think this is a a significant moment because this is uh, evidence from BP's own hand. So the uh, lawyers for various people who who are making claims or plan to make claims against BP from um, people who were injured or or killed in in the um, in the in the accident initially to uh, through to all sorts of people who claim that their businesses have suffered damage because of the pollution. The lawyers who act for all of these people will be reading this report very thoroughly for for evidence that they can use in their cases. I've had an early response, a typically robust response from one uh, lawyer for for, um, uh, people who are suing BP, a guy called Tony Busby at a Houston-based law firm, said that uh, his initial reaction was that he'd expected BP to try to, as he put it, spread the pain in this report and and that that's what it had attempted to do. But he said rather ominously, when you point a finger at others, there are always four pointing back at you. And he also raised quite an interesting specific point about the discussion in the report of the uh, failure to, to properly uh, interpret the uh, negative testing on the well. He described this as a, a major admission which would put legal liability squarely on the shoulders of Transocean and BP. And he raised the further point that if, as, as seemed from his reading of the report, these test results had been transmitted onshore, that could mean that BP management w- was also privy to them in, in legal terms and that that would also help the case of people who were suing BP and, and indeed Transocean and, and claiming that they bear responsibility for this blowout. And he, he said that the report will uh, defeat efforts in court by both companies, BP and Transocean, to confine the negligence to only workers on the rig and, and that the ultimate significance of this would be uh, higher damages awards for 
for those uh, killed or injured. I guess the big thing for BP, they do not want to be found guilty of gross negligence. Any response from lawyers on, on whether they think this sort of rebuts that potential charge? Yes, well, well uh, quite an interesting comment from John Coffey, um, an, an academic uh, in Columbia University, who said that in, in um, terms of evidence, BP's report was... Um, which, stands to reason uh, an admission which meant that it could be introduced in in court as uh, evidence that uh, plaintiffs could bring to try and build a picture of the the kind of negligence um, uh, you you described and you know obviously it would only be the the, the people who are suing BP will only be using bits of the report that that show errors by the company and so in that sense BP was was worse off in terms of trying to fight off these negligence claims and, and also that it's BP's criticisms of other others would would not be accepted by the court in in the same way. But he also made the point that um, he expected that BP was looking at the bigger picture and realised that in public relation terms it had to say something to try and shift some of the blame to other companies involved. And of course BP has sort of hinted at this all the way along. Just on that point that struck me from reading the report is even though BP is right, various sort of errors and mistakes were, were made by the Transocean guys on the rig and also by Halliburton and doing the cement job, um, ultimately you still come away thinking, well, this is a BP well that's being drilled. You know, Ultimately BP is responsible or should be responsible. So... Some, most a lot of the blame should, should lie at the door of BP. That leads us on to, on to another interesting point legally, which is that in the end, BP may, some legal experts say, have to fall back on a slightly different strategy, which is to try and leave aside the negligence point to, to, to a degree and instead, although I'm sure it will still fight on that point, but that perhaps its strongest legal grounds or, or the, the grounds where it can present a most plausible defence are in trying to to get some of the, as many claims as possible ruled out by arguing that those claims are not um, closely enough connected with the, the blowout and the pollution to, to justify damages being paid. So, for example, it may argue that you know a, a tourism business that was not on the coastline should not be able to claim for loss of business because there's too much of a chain of causation that you have to go through to, to get to the point where you make that connection and that the connection is just, just too Week and that um, that the claims should be uh, a much more narrow number of people who are you know, self-evidently directly affected by this, rather than having to argue for a series of knock-on effects. Um, and the other interesting thing, we'll obviously be waiting to see what Transocean and Halliburton say in response to the report. I don't think they'll be sitting on their hands on that particular front. Um, and, and you had there was an inter- interesting hearing coming up next week on that point. Um, um, well, what's happening next week in the y- US? Yes, yes. Uh, the, uh, next week there'll be a hearing which will be the next stage in um, a dispute which has been rolling on for a while now um, in which um, uh, Cameron, the group which made the blowouts preventer... Is that stack of valves... Uh, on the seabed that should have closed off and prevented any escape from oil and gas. Right. So again, you know, a, a defendant among the, the many other corporate defendants in this case, Cameron wants the judge who's, who's been uh, designated much of the BP litigation, uh, Carl Barbier, to um, to step aside um, because he formerly owned bonds in uh, Halliburton and Transocean, and they say that you know this this compromises him and he should he should step down. To 
to, to avoid a, a conflict of interest. Um, Mr Barbier has said that he, he doesn't believe that's necessary, that, that basically these bonds um, didn't constitute an ownership interest in the companies involved, so it was suf- he's sufficiently remote for them that he can he can quite properly stand. This, this has been in court once. Judges rules in favour of Mr Barbier's position said he could continue to sit, but with one or two areas of law which were a bit unclear and that they said that maybe their ruling wasn't the sort of definitive and Cameron has sort of leapt on that to say right we're going to try to refight this and so that that's what will come up uh, next week and uh, um, you know pr- presumably Mr Barbier will still want to do this case so we can we can expect to see some uh, some uh, some fireworks potentially. Okay thank you very much Michael. Now let's move on to our second topic for today smart grids and smart meters. Steve Cunningham chief executive of metering company Lannis and Gear joined the FT's environment correspondent Fiona Harvey this morning here in London. She started off the discussion by asking him to explain exactly what smart grids and smart meters are. So smart grids are really the sum of lots of pieces of smart pulled together. Smart energy as a, as a concept is really about helping different parts of the energy production chain to understand what's going on in real time in the network. And, and that goes right from the user in their home finally getting the ability to see how much energy they're using, do something proactive to control it, right the way through from the local transmission networks that deliver electricity or gas to your home, through the people that operate those networks that can manage things like blackouts or extra load in the network more effectively, and ultimately through to the generators who are responsible for making sure that the electricity or the gas comes down the pipes to your home. Smart grid is about doing all of those pieces. Smart metering is the piece that sits at your home that gives you as a user and your supplier, your energy supplier, and the network operator and the generator, just information about what you're doing as an individual. So a smart grid is more than smart metering, but smart metering forms the basis of the smart grid. Um, And what are the advantages of having a a smart grid uh, and smart meters over having the equipment that we've got at the moment? At the moment, the generators, the network operators, the energy suppliers are disconnected from you as a user. So when you use something, they've generated electricity and supplied it to your area based on what they think you're probably going to use in a given day. So it's predictive and it's not real time. It's not delivering actually what you need. It's delivering their best match to what you need. So the benefit over what we have today is today's a very static set of systems that work on predictive load, predicted use, usual weather patterns. When you all of a sudden get a really hard winter like we had last winter, it finds it difficult to react to those things. When you get a lot of wind turbine energy, it finds it difficult to react to those. Smart helps those things to happen much more effectively. In the case of the the meters, these will be sort of uh, two-way communication devices. um, And will they be owned by the electricity supply company or will individuals have to go around installing them? Today, what government has said is that the the rollout of smart meters will be the responsibility of the energy suppliers, so the British Gases, the Eons, the EDFs, whoever else. So they will deploy your smart meters. 
they'll also, by the looks of it, as it stands today, they'll be responsible for putting one of these in-home displays into your home that tells you how you're using energy. Is that likely to be the pattern in other parts of the world as well? In the majority of the rest of the deployments, firstly, you don't have such segregated markets as you do in the UK, where our suppliers and our network operators and our uh, generators are completely separated from each other. Uh, So in a lot of countries, you'll see those vertical stacks still in place. So the generator owns the network that delivers the energy to your home and owns the sale of that energy to you. What that means in a lot of countries is that the way regulators have chosen to deploy smart meters is they've typically said, well, you own the wires, Mr. Network Operator. You deliver the thing off the end of the wires. So they'll typically, if you look at the Netherlands, if you look at a number of the other big deployments in Europe, it's the network provider that owns the meter. But they're still delivering it on behalf of their retail division. So although in those countries the network operator owns the meter, rather than a meter asset funder in the UK. Actually, they both look very similar in that what they're trying to do is provide a meter to the people that sell energy, because the the third package and the way that Europe's steering regulators to act in countries around energy is to say, you must bring more competition in. So in effect, although it's a different model for ownership of the meter, the competitive element of saying, what can I offer to the supplier to, to make sure these meters offer the right service for them to customers? That's still the same. So it's, it's broadly similar. It's just the ownership is different. Where are we now in terms, first of all, in terms of the deployment of, of smart meters? I mean, I don't think I've got one, as far as I know. <laughs> in, the, in the UK, in terms of deployment? In the UK, first of all, yeah. We're really early days in the UK. All of the big six suppliers have made some steps into smart, but it's it's fractions of percent so far. British Gas have obviously announced their programme. That's a, that's a sizable deployment. They're talking about two million homes uh, over the next two to three years, so ahead of the main, the main rollout for government. So that's 10% of UK homes-ish. That's, that's a big commitment to make. Nobody else is quite there with, with that volume of commitment yet. But the pockets of smart trials that are going on are giving real and usable data to, to government, to manufacturers, to the other suppliers, so that we can start to understand what will work, what won't work. Across wider Europe, Italy obviously went a long time ago with their smart metering for electricity. It's a very early stage solution, and and they're now looking at gas. There's some volume of deployment in Spain. Netherlands, uh, we expect relatively soon, maybe in the next year and a half. Looking more broadly then um, at the whole of the the smart grid and Mm. and looking at at what you were talking about in terms of uh, putting more intelligence Mm. in the electricity networks, are we seeing that being rolled out anywhere in the world? We've been talking about it for about five years, but can you point to somewhere in the world and say they've got a smart grid? I think both the US and Australia have pockets of smart grid already. It's a different balance to the UK and to to mainland Europe, because in the UK and Europe, actually our grids are already relatively smart in terms of how they manage load, how they're able to shed and move load around. The grids in the US and Australia were, were very old grids, and so they needed a lot of work to bring them up to a point where they were much more efficient. So there they have active load control, they have much more ability to work with with different demands uh, from from users' homes. So they're early deployments. What we expect to see happen in Europe, though, is is very much the next generation of smart grid. 
the degree of course load. So when I say course load control, I mean things like swimming pools, um, air conditioning. Those happen in Australia and, and in the US. We don't typically have that across Europe. They're not big demands on our network. So we're talking about much finer degree of control, the ability to switch a dishwasher on or off remotely, the ability to bring uh, large-scale wind energy in and replace generated uh, coal fire energy, for example. Those pieces of control in the smart grid are much more difficult to do, and we think that's what we'll start to see in Europe. There are no smart grids in Europe yet. When do you think we will have smart grids in Europe? Certainly the UK is pushing hard with the Low Carbon Network Fund, which is all about how do you build um, smart grids. And some of those trials will start towards the end of this year and certainly more mainstream next year. And there's a five-year programme of pushing that um, funding model as well. So I think that'll be quite core for the UK to get experience. So we think we'll start to see pockets of smart grid over the next one to two years as different initiatives roll out. That was Fiona Harvey speaking to Steve Cunningham this morning. And that's all we have for today. We'll be watching very closely to see what reaction BP's competitors have to its report and we're bringing the latest to next week's show. All that's left for me is to thank my guests in the studio, Michael Peel, and to thank Steve Cunningham for coming in to talk to Fiona Harvey this morning. Energy Weekly was produced by LJ Filotrani. I'm Sylvia Pfeiffer. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.